Hello and thank you for joining us here on the Growth Medium podcast. My name is Sarah and I'm a first year medic here in the UK and I'm also co-host to the Growth Medium. And my name is Mem, also a co-host on the Growth Medium podcast. I'm a third year biochemistry student and a blogger on bimem.com. Just to give you a little insight about who we are, we bust myths in science and health by talking to the experts and sprinkling a little bit of controversy in there. I guess you could call us the myth busters. Severe eye roll. Anyway, we use evidence-based research as our weapons of choice. And don't forget, this season, we're overlapping culture with science. Absolutely. And to be part of all of this, all you have to do is join us every Monday as we learn more and grow our mindsets together. Enjoy and let's get on to the episode. Hey everyone, welcome back to The Growth Medium. I'm Mim. And I'm Sarah. And today we're going to talk about intuitive eating and a little bit about health at every size, which is also known as the Haze movement. Um, So it's something I think has gotten a bit more popular over the years and maybe a little controversial uh, and not talked about enough. Um, I certainly have only been introduced to this through Mim more recently. Uh, so yeah, it'd be nice to talk about it today. Yeah, I only learned of intuitive eating recently, probably in the last year. And it's something that's definitely, I think, misunderstood. And we're going to be joined today by a dietitian, Catherine Kimber from New Nutrition, to answer all, well, maybe not all, but some of the controversies around intuitive eating. Hi, Catherine. We're really, really, really excited to have you here today. So can you tell us a little bit more about yourself, please? Yeah, hello. And thank you so much for having me on your podcast. Um, and I'm really uh, excited that you found this approach and you're kind of you know, wanting to talk about it and um, break down some of the myths, perhaps, because it is a real nuanced subject and it's sort of boomed at the moment, I think, this last couple of years. And there's just a lot of people that are kind of turning it into something that it's not. Um, but anyway, so yes, I'm Catherine Kimber. I'm the founder of Nude Nutrition and I'm on a mission to help people find more food peace and food freedom and food happiness. And I'm a registered dietitian, graduated from King's. I've been practicing for nearly eight years now. I'm also a certified intuitive eating counsellor. Um, yeah, so it's a little, little brief overview about me. Um, I live in Poole on the South Coast, originally from Essex and um, yeah, really, really passionate about this work. So it's, I, I mean, I did some reading into your background, right? And what I found quite interesting is you initially started off as a weight loss dietitian, didn't you? And weight loss seems to be, or intentional weight loss, seems to be something that's quite the opposite of intuitive eating and haze. So how did you make that transition and why did you make it? Yeah, um, I think that's also aided, almost aided my practice in a way, because I've kind of seen both sides of the coin. But just to give you a bit of a backstory then. So I went to King's College, as I said, and studied nutrition and dietetics so I could qualify as a dietitian and work in the NHS. Um, and I practiced for a number of years in the NHS supporting very sick patients uh, in my earlier kind of days. And I was sort of band five and then band six specialist kidney dietitian. And then I always had an interest in research and the research research aspect of things because ultimately that's what informs a lot of our practice and so I went back to King's and did my master's in clinical research and it was after that that an opportunity came up for me to work in this private practice in West London and I made made a bit of a u-turn and 
that practice was on helping people to lose weight. And I think even in my early years as a dietitian, although I worked in the hospital, there was a lot of malnutrition and, and actually we're kind of doing the opposite in the hospital setting. Again, I was running diet like clinics and diabetes clinics. And, and again, like the focus there was always around, well, how can we make these people thinner? Um, anyway, so I branched out into this private practice and I think I did that because I saw it as a good opportunity to kind of branch out into the private world which is so different to the NHS world and I I think subconsciously had this like desire to sort of see how I could help other people lose weight and keep it off and and actually I think back then my beliefs around weight loss were sort of you know, we know it's possible, we know maintenance is really hard and most people don't do it, but our teaching at, at school was like, at uni was, but we've still just got to find a, mate, a way to make it work. And I think when I was working in the NHS in the in the clinics, I was seeing people maybe once every six weeks, once every couple of months for like a 15, 20 minute slot um, and really limited time. And I thought, you know what, the reason why people struggle with this is because we just don't get enough one-to-one time with them. And quite yeah quite naive to that to that all at that time Um, and so working in this private weight loss clinic I thought great I can kind of really work with people on a one-to-one basis really get to know them we'd see them every single week uh, have a lot longer with with patients and it was really at that clinic that I learned about the damaging side effects that come with dieting and most people that would come into this weight loss clinic they were paying a lot of money it was the like the last chance it was like I've done all these things but this is the thing that's going to work because I'm paying all this money and I'm coming to see these specialists um and really what I learned is that dieting has so many negative side effects emotional eating it puts people in the cycle of yo-yoing it kind of emphasizes the you know it puts that focus on weight loss as the kind of be all and end all of health and happiness it creates food rules and food guilt and food anxiety it creates disconnect and distrust from the body um and so also despite being armed with all of this nutritional knowledge as a dietitian working in the NHS and having done my degree I personally didn't have a great attitude towards food myself and that's probably what led me into doing a degree in nutrition subconsciously um you know from the age of 12 13 I started trying to now what I know, dieting at that age, taking diet pills and trying to find ways to keep my body small or to shrink myself and getting praise for doing so. Um, so I'd personally been on these repeated cycles of trying to eat well, cutting out sugar, cutting out carbs and also kind of sticking to those government guidelines of just being careful. And, and it just created for me this food obsession. And um, I was constantly in this cycle of restricting and being good and then falling off the wagon and feeling completely out of control um and obviously seeing that as well in the in the people that I was working with and it wasn't until I found intuitive eating and got out of that diet mentality really started looking after myself it changed my relationship with food food no longer had power over me like I could have chocolate in the house and wasn't a thing it wasn't a problem whereas before I couldn't even sniff a bit of chocolate and it would set me off for the day on like a, on a sort of a bit of a binge um so I personally went through a journey, um, became certified intuitive eating counsellor, started my own company. And I guess in my practice, what I do now is, although I do draw heavily on that nutrition research side, that's really important to me and our practice. There's definitely more psychology, behavioural science thrown in there. And I incorporate all the lessons that I've learned just by living and experiencing, but also learning about how my clients 
have experienced this and and what my colleagues teach me as well so I'm definitely still I think there's always more to learn in this space and it definitely has been a journey but without that background of having worked in the weight loss setting I think it might have been I would have had a, a different I don't think it would have got me to where I am really so I'm kind of grateful that I I did that but I do look back and cringe at myself <laughs> um but yeah we live and learn as practitioners and we have to be flexible and I think that's part of our job is to look at the research and you know and look at our experiences and we grow as practitioners and we specialize and we we learn and we move we move to different things so yeah well I I find I think what makes your journey really special is the fact that you've had this experience of you as you said you've seen both sides of the coin and um as well I see that um from what you've said you really draw on your personal experiences and that's as well what kind of even pushed you further to to explore intuitive eating because as you said like the guilt and everything is quite debilitating for a lot of people and it's not healthy we can get so bogged down in the physical health or like oh I need to lose weight I need to lose weight that we often neglect the mental health um I think perhaps we can define um intuitive eating and so basically I don't think it's about the diet mentality it's it's more about changing your view of food from what I understand and instead of as we said, instead of being intentional weight loss, it's more about um, changing the relationship with food. Yeah. So I think as well, we need to take it away from just food and look at the kind of wider picture of things as well. But intuitive eating is very much aligned with health at every size. And there are a number of different sort of non-diet approaches out there. But these approaches typically emphasise optimising physical, psychological health with people's weight naturally setting at, settling at a place that's, that's healthy for them um, because we're learning that these traditional approaches of, of pursuit of weight loss are ineffective for the majority um, and create a lot of physical and emotional distress so really with these approaches what we're focusing on is health gain as opposed to weight loss um, and really holding clients as the expert of their own lived experiences and honouring body diversity, which I think is the exact opposite of what dieting does. And intuitive eating is a evidence-based self-care framework to sort of help people move out of the the dieting mindset and break out of that negative relationship with food. Yeah, I, I really like the focus on healthy habits, the freedom of food freedom, and that's the side of intuitive eating that I think would work really really well for the majority of us because I think from so young we've had diet culture ingrained into our brains you know take this pill drink this detox tea etc etc um just to quickly define the haze movement we're not going to talk about it too much in this episode but uh, intuitive eating is a component of the haze movement and the haze movement prides itself on health at every size so it's trying to ensure equal treatment of different types of bodies of larger bodies in medical settings and this usually is because a lot of people in larger bodies will say that they've gone to a gp or they've gone to a doctor and they've gone with the medical issue and they've been just told to lose weight and sometimes that's not the answer and it's not helpful to them in the long run so Hayes takes a different approach to that and tries to focus on healthy habits and behaviors I'd say correct me if I'm wrong (laughs) yeah and there's so many little things that are popping into my head here that I want to kind of share um 
I think Health at Every Size has had criticisms, and I know you wanted to kind of discuss some of those a little bit. And I think some of the criticisms of Health at Every Size is that, yes, we can have health at every size, um, or everyone is kind of entitled to pursuing that if they want to. And the idea is that, you know, you can be healthy in a larger body, you can be healthy in a smaller body, but you can also be unhealthy in a larger body and unhealthy in a smaller body. Um, so it's kind of, yeah, decentering weight is that focus. But I think some of the criticisms of health at every size are, it's kind of trademarked as this, in the title, it says, you know, it says size. So it only, I think the criticisms are that health at every size only talks about size when, you know, historically, for example, black and brown people have been treated negatively by medical institutions um, and focusing on just the health and size kind of doesn't look at the other intersections that can interfere with someone's ability to receive adequate and effective health care. And, um, you know, so if you're if you're fat, but you're also queer and you're black and you're disabled and, you know, there's going to be multiple discriminations that are going on. And so the criticisms are that the approach doesn't look at that person, at individuals on a kind of wider basis and recognize that I think it doesn't really um it doesn't recognize that move like joyful movement for example intuitive eating might not be accessible to everyone you know intuitive eating might be okay if you have money to eat but if you what if you can't be intuitive with your food choices because you can't afford to do that um or you what if you you struggle to make peace with your body because actually it's discriminated against on a day-to-day basis like it's it's kind of very very complex Uh, (laughs) it's a complex it's a complex kind of um view but I think what we need to keep in mind is to to keep an open mind and really treat try and help people recover based on their own individual experiences what feels right for them see that individual as a as a whole and and really focus on put the focus on what matters to them as an individual as, as opposed to the healthcare professionals what we think should matter to them so switching that focus focus away from what we think they should do and what we think they should fix to be healthy when actually they're not interested in their health markers of blood pressure or cholesterol they're interested in I don't know getting food on the table <laughs> that's an interesting perspective I I recently read an article, I think you must have heard of it, Um, I can't remember who the writer was, but it was about um, the Hayes movement and the fact that it's being hijacked by certain people, and yeah, I read it and I didn't, I don't necessarily have an opinion on that article, but it was something that really um, forced me to think about the Hayes movement in a different way, because as you mentioned in the name, it focuses on the size aspect, but the um, other intersections of as you mentioned being disabled being brown being black that's not really something that we that's focused on in the movement so that's something that's really interesting yeah but I think as well we've got to we've got to kind of give it credit for it is something that is I think in healthcare we like to have models we like to have ways of guidelines and and actually it's there's a lot of positive that has come out of it so far but we still certainly like have work to do in that space as well in my opinion it's definitely far better than the model that we're pushing which is you know just trying to make people thin um and and really not looking at the wider picture as well there so and I'm sure having your one-to-one sessions makes it a bit more easier for you to identify where each person their background and to build a whole the bigger picture and then that that enables you to to better help them um in their own journey yeah 
For sure, and recognising, yeah, it's all very well making peace with food, but how do I exist in this world, in this body that I'm living in? Um, You know, of course, people want to pursue weight loss when the stigma attached to being in that larger body is just, quite frankly, disgusting that people experience. Um, So, I mean, I could go on about weight stigma (laughs) in healthcare, and um, yeah, there's a lot of there's a lot of negative side effects of that. But I think one other thing that popped into my head was with intuitive eating I think people have this fear of but what if I give myself permission to eat is it just a free-for-all right yeah I was just about to ask you about that I think one of the controversies or the kind of misunderstanding about IE is the fact is the idea that you can just eat whatever you want but that's not necessarily the case is it no, so I think it can naturally sound very daunting to be presented with that idea of, well, you just need to let go of all the my fitness pals and the rules and the counting and just eat what you want. <laughs> um, and I think the concerns are like, no, I don't trust myself. If I do that, I just won't stop eating. I won't be healthy. And I think those fears are totally valid and understandable because diet culture has taught us to think about food in this way of this is good this is bad and if we don't have rules you're going to be out of control um which I guess is is how these companies make money right they give us new ways of trying to give us these things to stick to um and sell us these new plans and rules and strategies that give us this illusion of we you'll be safe if you follow this and this is the way to eat um but actually those things can add to the feelings of being out of control around food and those moralising of foods as good and bad can lead to feeling deprived. So those feelings of deprivation and restriction around food. Um, and when we do eat those foods that are on that bad list or off limits or we break a rule, perhaps we eat more than, I don't know, X amount of bread a day or X amount of biscuits. You know, we've said, oh, we should only eat two squares of chocolate and we end up eating more. We feel guilt and we feel shame and we feel anxiety. Um And that just feeds into it. So that last supper mentality kicks in of, um, well, I'll just kind of, you know, keep going because I know that I'm going to restrict again tomorrow. So that, you know, that fear kicks in and the fear that we won't get those foods again kicks in, which only fuels into that intensity of feeling out of control. Um, So we feel out of control around that food, which confirms that we can't be trusted. And we then kind of double down on the rules again and think, gosh, I really need to stay away from that food. And we just stay in this loop of of, um, restricting, feeling out of control, feeling guilty and shameful about that and back to restriction. Um, But really, when we, you know, intuitive eating is a it's it does take time. um, uh, But when we do take that food down off of its pedestal and we put that chocolate down so that it's kind of as neutral as lettuce (laughs) and recognize that all food is morally neutral we get to ask ourselves do I even like this food um is it going to make me feel good right now is it going to fuel me for what I need am I going to feel deprived if I don't eat it is it going to satisfy me as opposed to have I been good today or um do I deserve this food have I earned it um and so I think as well it's not just about permission around those cakes and chocolates and biscuits and things like that it's it's also permission around eating salads and fruit and vegetables and I think some people that have been on diets for so many years have or trying to restrict and um in some form to pursue weight loss also have negative associations with with fruit and vegetables or with salads and um, they induce this kind of rebellion 
attitude um you know those foods have been foods they've eaten when they're on a diet and therefore god if if i touch them that means i'm going back to dieting um so what we really need to do is neutralize all foods and really focus on what feels good in the body what satisfies us and most people as they work through intuitive eating do discover that it feels good to eat a wide variety of different foods it doesn't feel good to eat chocolate all day it doesn't feel good to eat broccoli all day either it feels good to eat a wide variety of different foods but that restriction and deprivation mindset it can take time to to get past that especially from very young ages we've been told you know that's bad we're restricted from certain foods um you know most of the clients I work with started trying to control and restrict from the age of early puberty like eight nine ten years old so um we kind of the work is about sort of undoing a lot of those beliefs and then re relearning basically so would you say then that intuitive eating is more aligned to kind of responding to kind of emotional and physical hunger and what feels good to your body yeah so intuitive eating um is yeah like a a self-care framework we've not really talked about what it actually is Um, but it's been around for about 25 years now developed by two dietitians in america um evelyn triboli and elise resch and back then it was really research informed and they were realizing what i was realizing in that private weight loss clinic that you know what we're doing isn't working it's not helping people in the long term um and so they had developed these principles which have now kind of evolved and we have a lot more research and they were picked up by a, a researcher tracy tilker at the ohio state university in america who thought this is really interesting how can we measure this so she created the intuitive eating scale um and started measuring intuitive eating and, and researching it and we now have over 130 studies to support the benefits of intuitive eating to help people break out this negative relationship with food but to get really scientific about it it's based on the the kind of the crux of it is a concept called interoceptive awareness and this is the ability to receive physical sensations in our body and kind of respond to our needs and to give a great example of this i often use with clients um when we need to go for a, to the toilet for a wee I'm going to ask you too. <laughs> how do we how do we know that we need to go for a wee? Your bladder's full. You can feel uncomfortable. Yeah, you feel uncomfortable. You just know you need to go to the toilet. Yeah, you don't think about it. Yeah. Yeah, we get this discomfort in our bladder, don't we? And then we kind of just go. We don't think about it too much. But if we need to go again an hour later, what do we do? We go again. Yeah. And what do we think about that? No judgment. Um, and really what our body's doing there is trying to regulate our fluid, right? It's kind of filtering our blood through our kidneys, passing urine, excreting what we need to excrete. If we drink more, we wee more. If we drink less, we pee less. Obviously the temperature and exercise and everything else comes into play, but it's a really delicate system that our body's trying to deal with. Um, and that is an example of interoceptive awareness. Our responding to our body's needs, we go to the toilet. We might use our head as well to think, oh, well, I'm going to... Uh, I'm going to be going out for a few hours, there's no toilet, I better kind of just squeeze one out before I go. <laughs> um, so, But when it comes to hunger, and our hunger is there to try and regulate us, it, there's so much judgment tied up. If you've eaten breakfast but you're hungry an hour later, it's like, oh, I can't possibly be hungry, or oh, it's going to take me over my calorie limit, um, and all this judgment, and we kind of 
lose touch with this, with our ability to connect with hunger and fullness and what satisfies us, which as children, we're really good at. We know what we need. We know when we're hungry. We turn our head away when we've had enough. We naturally know when we want to play, when we want to sleep, when we want to rest, when we want to cry. Um, but as we grow older with all of these cultural, um, social sort of norms and ideas, we end up losing touch because of the judgment. And so really intuitive eating is about reconnecting, using the body with the mind um, to kind of build upon that interoceptive awareness, but also get rid of any barriers that interfere with interoceptive awareness, which is our beliefs around food, you know, which is also the kind of self-care things as well, stress and sleep and, and yeah, so so it's that, that's really kind of the crux of it but it's it's uh and, and the framework of the 10 principles behind intuitive eating are kind of to help people move through that really so i think one of the other con- uh, misunderstandings of intuitive eating is that it's kind of synonymous to fat acceptance and that it just allows overweight people to you know continue being overweight and being overweight is inherently unhealth but I see it more as the intuitive eating way is more about lifestyle habits changing your lifestyle habits so they're healthier what do you think about this and do you think it's beneficial to shift the focus from weight being overweight to these lifestyle habits definitely so what we know and I think this is like the key thing we know that people can lose weight we know that that's possible Mm -hmm. However, there is an overwhelming amount of research to support that there are very limited long-term benefits of weight loss. So, um, you know, regardless of the initial amount of weight loss that we we see with lifestyle interventions, whether it be very low-calorie diets, whether it be a behaviour change, a bit of both together, most people regain that weight within a two-year period. And by five years, the majority of people are back at that pre-intervention weight. 30 to 60% of those are actually higher than where they first started. It's not working. So we need a different approach to health because it's not making people healthier in the, in the kind of for the majority. Um, it's, you know, it has huge side effects on people's mental health and physical health. We know that it results in that rebound weight gain. So metabolism, emotional eating, uh, body dissatisfaction, um, loss of that ability to connect with natural hunger and fullness eating disorders disordered eating and so so I think we really need to consider the impact of that and actually how it's not working so yes we see those sort of short-term benefits but if you think about it when someone's on a diet and they're pursuing weight loss uh, they're not just losing weight they're kind of engaging in other behaviors they're you know maybe moving more or they're eating more fruit and vegetables and so there there are associations with losing weight and improved health and we see those markers improve but we can't be entirely clear on on exactly what's led to that whether it be the weight loss or the behaviors um but I think what we what we need to come back to is is the fact that it's not it's not working long term um and so and actually if I think they say this in the intuitive eating book, if weight loss were to be a pill, the doctors wouldn't be allowed to prescribe it because of its lack of effectiveness. Um, you know, it's, 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 it's just not fair. (laughs) Um, so I think as well, we have to consider separating the, this idea that weight and health are the same thing, um, which is quite a challenging thing to try and get our head around when that's kind of what we've been led to believe for so long that thin equals healthier but there have been huge bodies of research so a study published in 2012 by Matheson 
and this has been replicated in, in other European countries as well. This was an American study. They followed 130 million people over the course of uh, 14 years. So there's a lot of people, a lot of data. And what they did is they categorised these people into their body mass index. So we had the kind of normal weight range, the overweight range, the obese range is categorised by the BMI. Um, and what we see is, yes, those people that are not engaging in the healthy behaviours, those healthy habits, eating a good quality diet, which is indicated by fruit and veg intake, um, not participating in physical activity, smoking, drinking more alcohol than what's recommended, we know that those that are in larger bodies have a higher risk of death. Um, however, as soon as those people that are in larger bodies engage in even just one of those behaviours, that risk of death comes right down to half. Um, and actually when when those individuals are engaging in, or those groups of people who are engaging in all of those healthy behaviours, their risk of death is the same as someone else in a smaller body in that normal range, as defined by the BMI. BMI. Um, their risk of death is, is right back down. It's on the same level. So actually, we really need to take the focus off of that weight, which is not helpful. It's not working. And on to helping people and enabling people to engage in these behaviours if they wish to because not everyone has to pursue health you know we, no, no one has a moral obligation to pursue health but I think we need to create spaces that enable people to engage in these behaviours because at the moment we don't we don't do that you know there's a lot of stigma um, and also an interesting statistic that only I think it's 10% of the UK population would have to spend more than 75% of their disposable income on food in order to meet the healthy eating guidelines. So like that is a problem. <laughs> yeah, it's a huge problem. It makes it feel like a bit inaccessible. Very much inaccessible, yeah, especially for the those from a lower socioeconomic background. It's not it's not feasible. It's not feasible and it's not helpful. And, and I think as well, what we see is, is the stigma attached, um, you know, the weight stigma, which is the negative attitudes and beliefs and judgments towards people that are very large or very thin, um, has, has huge effects on the, on the healthcare that's provided to individuals. So uh, we know that stigma and weight stigma is most predominant in um, healthcare, but also friends, family and loved ones. And we know that that stigma, that's that, the biases that we hold which results in stigmatizing behaviors towards um people that are in larger bodies for example is independently associated regardless of size independently associated with higher blood pressure higher blood glucose levels um higher risk of metabolic syndrome um and i work with so many people that haven't been to a physio because of their back issues that haven't been to the doctor because whenever they do go they go there for an ear infection or they go there for a shoulder pain or they go there for foot pain or whatever and they're sent away with a weight like with a, with a diet sheet <laughs> um and it's just not helpful it's not supportive and actually it results in people avoiding going to the to the doctors because they they don't get the support that they need and i think it can be especially daunting if you're just sent away with a sheet it's like how do i start you know what do i do there's lots of questions that's in your mind that you can't really ask the doctor i guess but it's also um, not even what they went there for <laughs> <laughs> that too. um but yeah and i think there's there's so many flaws as well like in the medications a lot of drugs and i think this will be interesting for you as like students studying to kind of just keep your eyes 
eyes out um, and to criticise and question because a lot of drugs, for example, aren't trialled in people that are in larger bodies. So we don't know what drugs are going to be effective for those people. They're not clearly understood. People are underdosed. If they then pass away, that their mortality is attached to, in part, their body mass index. When actually it's down to that systemic issue that that medication was underdosed, it was misunderstood. Um, and I think a lot of the research has looked through the lens of how can we make these people thinner rather than actually how can we help these people improve their health or get them well. Um, and it, yeah, it's just not working. Otherwise, you know, if, if, if it did work, we'd all be thin. Yeah, <laughs> um, true. And we wouldn't have, we wouldn't have different size and shape bodies. Um, yeah we did mention this in our medical bias episode we did talk about the lack of so we have a lot of medical bias and that includes people who are of excess weight they're often they have a bias against them in the medical field and um the fact that they're not participating in these different researches for medication for medical research means that it's not applicable to them and we cannot you know the results that we um, obtained from these studies can't be applied to them either so it's not only these like obviously people of who, who are um with higher bmi um yeah they can't be uh this research can't be applied to them and of and it's really sad because then as you said it's tied with their bmi the the reason why uh, their mo- the higher mortality is tied to their weight um rather than the lack of research yeah, and, and another example is, you know, someone goes to the doctor for abdominal pain and they're in a larger body, that doctor assumes that they eat a bad diet, go away, eat better. And actually that person has something really serious going on, which isn't picked up for a number of months and they get very sick. And there's so many case studies on this happening, cancer being missed because of, you know, being sent away when actually if that person was thinner, they would have had more investigations potentially. Um, it's really, a, it's really a very sort of systemic systemic issue there's a lot of shame and blame and um you know people are denied the ability to have children denied treatments because of their size despite a history of chronic dieting eating disorders and also what we know with the with the ineffectiveness of weight loss and sustaining that um so it's really sad and i think it's really important that we kind of listen to the lived experiences of people um and advocate you know i'm small i'm you know i mean living in a in a smaller body uh, or a, a body that's deemed to be sort of acceptable in this society and I think you know I don't have those lived experiences but what we can do as professionals is kind of help advocate for for other people and um yeah kind of raise the uh, awareness of of this work yeah it's it's quite upsetting that this is you know it it is such a big issue and as you said you know raising awareness about it talking about it is the way that we can change this and this isn't to say that you know people who live in larger bodies don't um struggle because of their weight like i i live in a larger body um and i can say confidently that my higher weight does um have some i wouldn't say debilitating effects but it does make things harder of course but it's not but I think it's about, you know, as you said, listening to people's lived experiences and um, accommodating that. And also like normalising that as well. And I think as professionals, um, you know, some of my clients, for example, they they go to a yoga class or they don't go to a yoga class because actually none of the exercises are applicable or suitable for them. And there's no adaptations done. They don't feel comfortable in a gym. There's not clothes sizes in, um, you know, I think kind of high street, classic high street um 
shops don't necessarily have sizes that are applicable to a number of people um or you know it might be I think as as professionals like if a client says to me I'm really struggling because I've got you know my legs are kind of chafing and they're sore like we should be able to come back and say oh there's this product there's this product there's this product and to kind of normalize that um and just and and have normalize that but also have ways to support people in all bodies to um be able to engage in the activities they want to engage in and recognize that putting them on a diet isn't necessarily going to help the help help how they're feeling but not to disregard the the difficulties and the stigma the microaggressions from getting on a bus getting on a plane being looked at being shouted at all of those things that you know people we know that the higher the weight the more stigma is faced so so i guess um it's natural to to ask that if someone wanted to pursue intuitive eating what would be the first steps that they needed to take to embark on this journey yeah i think that one one thing is to uh, to actually find the appropriate sources of information on it i think there's a lot of misinformation around what intuitive is what it isn't um and there are because it's become quite a trendy topic over the last couple of years it's it's been picked up and co-opted into a diet by a number of people so I think actually finding out the from those qualified professionals or the people that are kind of talking about this in the right way and that is maybe by first actually getting the intuitive eating book um Evelyn Triboli and Elise Resch have just published a fourth edition we there's Just Eat It by Laura Thomas there is a number of podcasts out there for example Christy Harrison has a podcast, Food and Psych, it's called. She has also has a book called Anti-Diet. Um, my blog has lots of stuff on there as well. And <laughs> um, to really get into grips with what it is, to also reflect on your own lived experiences, like um, regardless of what the research says, like actually has what, what you've been doing working for you? Because if it hasn't, if you are experiencing being on and off of various different diets, you're not, you um you are feeling out of control around food and just feel like what's you know what you're doing is is actually having a negative impact on you psychologically and emotionally and physically um to just yeah reflect on reflect on those experiences and and really think about whether that that is working for you or not um to uh clean up social media feeds so have a good clear out of anyone that doesn't make you feel good about your own body that um perhaps pushes unrealistic body standards that promotes I know balanced eating but they cut out carbs or they talk about clean eating or whole foods and so to really kind of start surrounding yourself with positive messages about food and bodies and educating um what else I really I think as well just a basic kind of nutrition thing is is rather than focusing on what you can restrict and deprive and cut out really focus on what you can add into your diet to make you feel good um so yeah really there's no single foods that are going to make us unhealthy healthy no foods that need to be cut out of our diet unless we've got an allergy or medical condition um and actually it's that restriction and deprivation that can set us up for for not yeah not feeling good um I'm just thinking of some other practical initial steps because there's there's a lot to it there I know that Evelyn and Evelyn and Elise have a workbook as well that might be a helpful place to start um I think that we need to keep a really open and compassionate mindset that if you've been 
dieting or trying to pursue weight loss for a number of years is going to take some time to start to be able to think differently. Um, so giving yourself slack, really, that this work is challenging, it's different, it's it's not easy, um, it is possible, but just it doesn't need to be kind of rushed all at once. Um, yeah. <laughs> How about um, in terms of like dealing with feelings of guilt? What should someone say if if let's say someone's embarked on this um, their IE journey and they're starting to feel guilty for just eating the normal food just n- and not restricting themselves? I guess what what would be the mental processing of that feeling? Yeah. Well, if you think about what guilt is, like what what is it? What make what, what's the definition of guilt? Feeling bad. Yeah. For doing something wrong. Yeah. <laughs> So it's like we feel guilty when we have this sense of like committing a crime or breaking something. Um, And so what can someone do if they're feeling guilty? Um, So I would actually before that, I think one of the fundamental reasons why people can feel a little bit out of control is because they're not adequately feeding themselves in the day. So so what I classically see is people get into five, six, seven o'clock at night and kind of raiding the fridge, fridge, feeling out of control, feeling guilty, um, only to kind of try and then restrict again the next day. And so what I kind of, I think, as a sort of broader issue is um, that I see is restricting the day through either just being busy or distracted or trying to be sort of good. Um, and one place I think can be beneficial for a lot of people to start is to consider, you know, are you eating enough in the day or are you backloading a lot of your food to the evening? And to start by making sure that you're having regular meals and snacks throughout the day. Um, if you're really stuck and you don't know how to, you're struggling to listen to those sort of hunger signals, which is, you know, it's not an easy thing to start listening to, but it's to actually get a regular pattern of eating in. And most people find that it feels good to eat roughly every three hours or so and to not leave long gaps between eating of more than sort of five hours. And now that doesn't need to become a rule, but just getting curious about that. Because sometimes that's what can lead to that out of control eating because the body's not biologically fed. But when it comes to um, the, the guilt, what I encourage people to do is actually just write down well, what are those foods that you're feeling guilty around and kind of create that problem list, that guilty list, um, and actually get the rules that are in the head out on paper. And these aren't going to be easy to pull out because they're kind of deeply ingrained in our head sometimes. But to start to um, just kind of get 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 these out of our head and onto and onto paper so we can start looking at them more critically and thinking right well where did that come from is it helping me um because whilst i'm telling myself carbs are bad after six o'clock the reality is i binge on carbs after six o'clock so it's not serving me um and really just one by one kind of ticking those rules off and i like to think of you know, if we think about our brain having all these different neural pathways i like to think of it like standing at the one end of a field and we've got to get out the other side and we to go down the right hand side of that you know there's a right hand exit there's a right hand pathway which is that well-trodden dieting restrictive pathway that's not helping us but that's a nice gravel path there's lots of you know stones it's nice and clear we know how to do that but with intuitive eating what we're trying to do is is get out to the left hand side of that field and, and go a separate way to get out the other side but that means kind of navigating through bushes and trees and weeds and we've kind of got to take a machete to that and and start cutting our own way through and making our own path so I think it's un 
unrealistic to expect that we're suddenly just going to let go of that guilt. Um, what we're going to find ourselves doing is um, trying to make that new pathway and try and challenge some of those those rules that have been um, yeah created around food. But realistically, other t- you know we're going to end up falling down both pathways at times. So sometimes if we're tired or stressed or too hungry or too busy, we're going to end up f- falling down that sort of well-trodden pathway. Um, and we need to kind of start to um, create these new neural pathways in our brain. And that's going to mean that there's probably at, at one point there's going to be there's going to be the guilt there, but there's also going to be the kind of more positive way of thinking about things as well, both together. And it's not until we start following that new way of thinking that we start challenging some of those rules that that other gravel pathway, that nice clear route is going to start growing weeds and bushes and things that mean it's difficult to go down there anymore. But I think it's it's normal to expect that, that those those guilty thoughts are going to linger for a while and it's important to try and keep challenging those. I love that some that you know comparison. <laughs> it makes it a lot, you know, it digests it, make it very, you know. Yeah, I like to use. I use all sorts of analysis with clients to help understand it. Mm-hmm. Um, but unfortunately, yeah, it's not like a single thing. It's it's really working through some of those belief systems and challenging them, reflecting um, on how they are kind of actually not serving us. Do you have any tips or advice or information to people who might be intuitive eating or haze skeptics? Um, I think there's, I think it, I think there's a really great podcast actually by Evelyn Triboli, who's sort of the founder of this, and she does a podcast on. It's hosted by Ten Percent Happier, and it's called the Anti Diet, and she published this back in Jan. It was January twenty twenty, and I think she provides a really great insight into what it is, what it isn't. And actually, because the host, he's a he's a guy that was very much in the kind of diet mentality and she actually almost works on him in the session. So it's quite a long podcast, but I think it gives a really great insight into the actual inner workings of it happening. Um, and yeah, I think it's the best podcast that I've listened to on Intuitive Eating so far. So I think that's it for today's episode. I think we really, you know, touched on the overall concept of what intuitive eating is. And I really liked, Catherine, that you went over the fact that it's not a straight, easy path. It's quite difficult and there's um, intersectional problems with it. I really, really did enjoy that. So did I. Thank you so much. Yeah, no, you're very welcome. Um, there's lots, yeah, there's lots and lots I could talk about. I could talk about it all day. But um, yeah, I think for anyone embarking on it, I think it's really important just to reiterate that you you don't need to rush into it all at once. Be careful who you're getting information from. Um, don't be afraid to work with a practitioner that can help support with this because it's uh, easy to sort of try and understand what it is but then in the application of that can be more challenging so um yeah go easy on yourself (laughs) these are difficult difficult ideas not uncommon for people to feel a little bit like oh my god this feels like it's you know it's uh it's different isn't it I think the fact that you can speak about it all day just shows your passion for it (laughs) and how much you really live for it yeah I do (laughs) admire that (laughs) yeah I think just to sort of say like I know you asked about the the benefits of it and I think it's not just about the food it's about 
it threads throughout everything that we do in our life and and having that freedom around food and you know allows people to live more fulfilled lives and I think that's what I'm so passionate about is helping people reduce that brain space that's consumed by food and body so that they can go and live their lives and do the things that are meaningful to them and I think having found that myself and working with people who find that it's just such I'm just so passionate about it because it's yeah it helps people (laughs) that passion has definitely infused into me I feel like Sarah we need to do like a mini series or something on this (laughs) and go listen to all the podcasts you've recommended today it's definitely something to explore a bit further yeah and also um for another for another just finally another book for the skeptics is called body respect by linda bacon and lucy aframore and that goes into a lot of the science behind like myth busting around weight science um and it's not so much in focus on intuitive eating but sort of health at every size and and i think it's a really little great digestible small book around weight science we'll link that all in the in the description or on our website hopefully yeah so yeah i think that's where we're going to leave the episode thank you so much Catherine, for coming on and talking to us about intuitive eating i really learned a lot particularly about uh all the controversies that are kind of in the movement and what we can do better but also the positives that the movement has had sure yeah thanks so much for having me as always the references and the show notes and any other resources that Catherine mentioned will be in the show notes um, and that's linked in the description and we'll also link Catherine's social media if you're interested also follow us on instagram at the growth medium we're definitely more active on there really regularly and we'd love to hang out and chat with you so yeah make sure to follow us there and then i guess we'll see you next week until then bye